invite you to stand as a sign of our reverence for that word that we're going to read today. <clears throat> Somewhat long passage, uh, but we'll be good. Mark 13, verses 14 through 31. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. This is the word of the Lord. You may grab a seat. What a doozy of a passage. <laughs> oh, man. If you've been with us, we've been in Gospel of Mark, and when you do verse by verse through a gospel, you eventually have to go through this, which I think is one of the toughest passages in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus has this section uh, in three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, where he describes this kind of mega event of the temple being slain down and or Jesus coming back. And he's kind of like waffling between those two. It's actually the longest section of teaching in the Gospel of Mark. And so it's good to sit in these words and wonder what relevance do they have to us. So the big picture hovering above all of Mark 13, which we're spending like probably three or four weeks on total, is that there's a, a crisis coming in which the Jerusalem temple is going to be torn down by the Romans. There'll be lots of temptations for how to respond. This is in tune with other kinds of suffering that are always going to be happening in this world until the Lord returns. We will be tempted, they will, the Christians at the time will be tempted to interpret that in all sorts of unhealthy ways. But the main task is to persevere in our commitment to Jesus because in the end he will make things right and do not be led astray for any other option that would make you go away from Jesus' words. That is the essential framework, and let's keep that in mind as we slowly come through all the uh, exegetical surprises in this passage that may be hard for us to grasp. But to bring it down to earth, to make that event that happened 2,000 years ago, the crash of the temple, relevant to us, I think a huge question that I would want to linger is whether these statements are true. I think it has to do with how we think about safety. Two theologians that I respect, one Todd Hunter is an Anglican bishop, he says, and he has said repeatedly, we are always safe in the kingdom of God. Dallas Willard 
is another uh, fantastic theologian, has influenced me a lot when it comes to spiritual formation, and he has said, the world is a perfectly safe place for you to be. And I'm curious, if just to think to yourself, whether you think these statements are true. Are we always safe in the kingdom of God, and is this world indeed a perfectly safe place for you to be? And I would not only reflect right now on whether you think these statements are true, I would also take note of how you feel in response, because your gut level sense of this will probably tell you more about tensions you might have with God and your level of security with God in this world more than your philosophical reflections right now. So when, you, when I tell you, hey, you are always safe in the kingdom of God, how does that land with you right now? Does that make you kind of defensive? Does that make you kind of push back? Are you prone to argue? Like, in what sense are we safe? Um, I was thinking about it just yesterday because um, there's a song, a worship song that I keep playing on repeat, and, and it says, it's talking about God, and it says, you would cross the ocean so that I wouldn't drown. And like, I play it so often that we sing this, these songs, and it was in the car, I was playing that song, and we were singing it, and then as soon as that statement finished, Graham goes, uh, but hang on a second, people do drown. <laughs> My 11-year-old, he's like, mm, how is that statement true when people do drown? So in what sense would God cross the ocean so I wouldn't drown when people do drown? So that's kind of the, the, the thing at work here is whether or not we are indeed safe in the kingdom of God. And I'm reflecting on that question as I think about the Christians hearing Jesus' words, the disciples hearing his words about the temple collapse and how it relates to us today. So have some patience with me as I slow down to kind of go uh, verse by verse to try to unpack some things that can make us go all kinds of crazy ways moving forward here. So let's start here. The summary of this little section is that when Rome attacks Jerusalem, the disciples are to run because the situation will not be safe. Jesus writes, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. So if you've, in Mark 13 so far, he has been warning them that the temple will go down. The disciples had looked at the buildings and said, Lord, look how great these buildings are. And he said, yes, they are nice, and also they will be torn down soon. And then any stone will remain. And so he's helping them sort through this time that will come. And what will happen is Jerusalem, the Jews living there, will eventually want to rally up and try to overthrow uh, Rome, who's kind of occupying that territory. And eventually Rome is going to smack down that rebellion. And Jesus is saying, watch for that. And he says, there's going to be a signal... And when this happens, you better get out of there. And the signal is this abomination that causes desolation. He says, let the reader understand, because it's actually like a code language to say, refer back to scripture where that phrase is used, and it's used in Daniel, when rival armies entered into Jerusalem, and they took over the temple at the time, and they broke into the Holy of Holies, and they desecrated it. They offered uh, not good sacrifices there, and they went into a space that was deemed holy. This is all hard for us to even wrap our minds around because we don't live with like temples down the street where we imagine certain spaces more sacred than others. But for a first century Jew, you would imagine that. The temple was a specially sacred place. That's where God's presence is uniquely manifested. And you can't just, not anyone can just roll up in there and do what they want. And so he's saying, the, when Rome 
enters into the temple and desecrates the Holy of Holies, that is your signal that it's about to get really bad, and so you better run. And praise God the slides have returned. That's good. Um, so that's the point where you better run. And this is crucial because even you know this now, that, that when we are facing crisis, you will hear people say, we don't need to run. We're going to be safe. God's going to protect us. We're safe. Jesus is saying, this is a situation that won't be, so you need to leave. That there is a healthy sense of self-preservation, that even if you are faithful, and even if God is with you, and even if God is on your side, you are not uh, uh, without vulnerabilities, and without fragility, and without frailty. And so if you're able to protect your physical body, and not take an unnecessary risk, you should do that. And that would apply even to now. But he's saying, don't Pretend like this, you won't be in the crossfire. You're going to want to leave. And so there is a situation that will be so bad that you should run. Don't try to stay because it will get better. Don't try to presume it's going to be okay. And don't try to stay and fight. You need to leave out of there. So it's going to be bad. Run. And you can imagine situations for us now that when you're under a threat, don't presume I should go down to the mountaintop and see what's going on down there. You should leave. You know, when you see other people running, you should run too. Let's keep going and see how, how it shakes out. Now we should pray because this situation is so terrible and beyond our control. This is Jesus saying this. Terrible promises coming. How dreadful will it be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers? Pray that this will not take place in the winter because those will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he had chosen, he has shortened them. So He's saying the situation will also be so bad that not only if you can run, you should also pray ahead of time that it will not be happening during a time that will make a bad situation even worse. It is going to be that bad. So uh, it'll be the worst for pregnant women and nursing mothers because they are exceedingly vulnerable and they need the situation to be even more stable. And it's going to be bad. And actually, Josephus is a Jewish historian, and he write about, wrote about this time that happened about 70 A.D., about 30 years after Jesus said this, 30, 35 years. And he says that it was so terrible, the siege that happened where Jews were starving to death, and many of them killed one another in hopes of survival and even have to, like, like I mean, it's really, it was really bad. It was a harrowing situation that uh, we have seen situations like that since then, and it is that bad, but it, it can't get much worse. And you have to start to imagine if you were in that space. Like, try to get out of, like, a detached sense of history. Imagine if you are a Jewish person and you're used to semi-stable Jerusalem. Even if you're under Roman occupation, you're able to work, you're living your life. Yes, you're paying exceeding taxes. Yes, you better watch out for Roman soldiers. But you generally are going about life normally. And the temple, which was an overwhelmingly awesome structure, gives you a physical sign that things seem safe and stable. And now imagine that stable sign and institution at the center of the city collapses, and you now don't have access to food. And even people that like each other are turning against each other to try to survive. Like, you have to imagine the way your world would crash, even if you have heard Jesus say this. Even if, like, 30 years later, you're like, Jesus said this, and also, I can't believe we are in the crossfires of this horrible tragedy. You have to start to imagine how terrible this is. And Jesus says to pray, and he says, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, he means there, he needed some disciples, some Christians, to survive that time. 
Now, if you're like me, you're like, well, why didn't you say more? If you could have cut short those days, why would you not make those days not happen at all? If you saved a few of them, why didn't you save all of them? If you are, if you lost someone in there and then you saw others survive, you would be like, well, why did my family member die and these other ones remain? This is how humans would respond, right? And this is when you can start to let this intersect with your current situation now. Because you have that kind of suffering that you want to cry out to God those kind of questions. Don't tell me to pray to make things right when if you have the power to do it, why aren't you doing it? You can start to feel that and God can take that response. We're going to talk about that in a second. And then finally, be on your guard because people will give you false promises of safety. He says this, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. And so just like us now, when a situation of crisis emerges, would-be leaders and influencers would like to gather a following. And their main promise is, if you hitch your ride to me, I will keep you safe. If you hitch your ride to me, I will keep you safe. Maybe sometimes it's just a blanket false sense of comfort. Hey, God's not going to let anything bad happen to us. Just stay here. We'll be okay. Don't worry about it. So he's like, don't be caught off guard with a false sense of security that just because you are in God's camp, that he's going to keep you safe from the crossfire of this violence. Other messiahs and prophets would say, God's on our side to actually fight. So we should stay gather up our arms, and fight against the enemy because God blesses us. He's for our side. Doesn't he hate those crusty Romans? Doesn't he love us righteous Jews? He will protect his favorite city. So even though we are outnumbered, look at these passages from the Old Testament where God saves his outnumbered people. Gather up arms so we can fight. Both of them are a false sense of security and safety. You stay with me, and I will keep you safe. I will keep you safe by either trusting that God will protect us in some miraculous way, or I will keep you safe because we will fight and God will be behind us and we will win. Is this relating to ways you hear Christians talk about stuff today? We are in a crisis. The world is filled with crises. And there is always a false promise that somehow you will not be caught up into that pain. And or we can like somehow put aside Jesus' other commands around peacemaking and forgiveness and being willing to die because he somehow is now putting that aside because our cause matters so much that perhaps we should take up arms to fight. I would be slow, usually, to embrace that. If there are times when that must happen, we better make that choice with incredible slowness and, and uh, be open to the fact we might be self-deceived to think we are maybe special in this way. I can leave it at that for there. But just to give you a recap of where we have so far, this world is not safe, man. Here's what Jesus has promised you. They are not safe from hurt, so they better run. You cannot stop the hurt from happening, and so you better pray. And all of it will be tremendously unclear. It will not be self-evident. None of it will be clear. And so you better watch out because lots of lies are coming all around, and you're going to have to figure out how to discern the truth and stay faithful. Is that not true? Does this not relate to your experience? And this is a promise from the Lord. It's a not fun promise. It's like his promise, in this world you will have trouble. It is his least popular promise. We hate that phrase. Like, uh, I want to go to the good one. Like, you will never leave me or forsake me. Yeah, I know he says we will not have trouble, 
but perhaps there's like some words in there that maybe don't apply to me. And yet, this is what he promises. The world's not safe. You are not safe. A really terrible thing is about to happen, and uh, you are not immune from being caught in the crossfire of that. And so even though we aren't there where the temple is, this kind of, that truth would apply to crises ever since then, okay? So now what? If the world is not safe, then what? Here we go. Our natural response is, this is terrible. I hate this. You might rage against it. So if you have anger, like, why is this the case? Or you might have a depression, a despairing depression. Like, this is terrible. Like, I want to opt out now. I give this zero stars, uh, uh, zero out of ten, and I do not recommend. I do not think you should go to that restaurant. Please do not buy this on Amazon Prime. This is not, this world is zero out of ten, and I think I'm, I'm ready to opt out now. That's, if you face this, and you get in the crossfire of this, this is our natural response. And I think if we are real, God will welcome that. And if you read scripture, you would see how often righteous people have that exact response, and God can take it. And some of us, we've had that this week. Last week, when we recognized and we grieved the loss of Linnea, we got to say, we hate this. This world is not okay. We do not like that death is here. Cancer's presence here is not okay. And if we feel that hatred for that type of life, we look at Jesus' own life and words and responses and realize he doesn't like it either. And so that makes you say, why then, Jesus, if you don't like it, then why don't you do something about it if you are so powerful? And we never get a satisfactory, clear answer to the why. Just read the book of Job. We see a behind-the-scenes curtain view of what's about to happen to Job. Job and his friends rage about what has happened. In the end, God brings a resolution, and yet Job never gets the why answered. He never gets the peel back behind the curtain to understand any of the reasons or why or what has happened. He just knows his experience and a change. And then what? And so even your, the affirmation of an outcry of why that is not answered is there. And you realize some of the slight way we begin to have comfort and acceptance of this is to come to grips with the fact that Jesus resonates with our natural response and it would be helpful on the way to not deny it. Matter of fact, we might be more healthier, faithful, sure people if we can accept this. That's not the only source of comfort. It's not just kind of a resolve that this world's terrible. There is a new way here. This is not the end, but Christ will return eventually. Let me break this down. Jesus says, but in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the, to the ends, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. All right, so each of these words or phrases in the beginning, but in those days and following that distress, is carrying a heavy load here. So I'm going to slow down with each one here. First, but. That's carrying a heavy load. When you are describing an awfulness of reality, in scriptures, and then we turn to, but you're saying, and yet, whatever I just said is not the only reality. It's not fundamental to reality. It's not the final reality. There's more to come. There is a turn there. It's also a but to separate a present crisis from the end of the world. I've said three times now, or two other times when we talked about Mark 13, that 
we, the temple will collapse, institutions will go down, and yet this is not the end of the world. And you will experience persecution, but it is not the end of the world. There will be famines and wars and rumors of wars, but it is not the end of the world. That we are prone to want to interpret present-day crises as this must be the end. And you will even know Christians who think that's the right and biblical thing to do. Jesus is saying that's not the case. You need to separate what is a terrible crisis from seeing that through the lens that this is the end of the world. It's, this whole chapter is literally telling them to do the opposite of what large sections of Christians have done in America for the past hundred years. Don't read a present-day crisis that you're locally experiencing as the end of all things. It is, he's saying it's not that. So that's the next piece. In those days, this is carrying weight too. We will read this and think this is about time. Okay, what he's talking about is about to happen in the same time as the days that the temple collapses. That's not what it is. In those days is a euphemism, a phrase used in the Old Testament to refer to the end times, end of all things, almost a separate from a present-day crisis. So when a first-century Jewish Christian reads those words in those days, they're not thinking that time period right then, in those days triggers an end-of-all-things kind of thing. So he's saying, I'm turning the conversation now away from the present temple crisis that's tearing us down to a further eternal picture that could come soon or could come a long way away. And he's saying that time period is going to be after following the distress that's happening now. Are you following with me, man? I realize I'm really slowing it down here, and you're like, oh, my gosh, the Bible scholarship, please. We've had enough. But... I'm trying to help you out because if you're going to like be reading the Bible on your own, you'll get to this chapter and you'll just close it up and be like, I don't even know what's happening there, but I know it's left behind series is not going to be for me. You're not going to know what to do about it, but I'm trying to give you just enough to say, don't read that book and presume it has anything theologically accurate in it. Okay. So he's saying, but I'm going to transition now away from the present crisis to an eschatological. That means end of everything. And that time period could be very soon, or it could be far away. All you need to know is it'll be after the distress he's talking about there. And he's trying to give them an eternal perspective in the face of a present-day horrible thing. And that's the piece that we need, okay? Eternal perspective in the face of a present-day crisis. And that can relate to you if you've got a personal crisis, your personal world's falling apart, or if it's a mega crisis, like a global thing. Is my voice now echoing? The Lord is about to return now because it's from the clouds of heaven. He's coming down. Okay. Nate and Steve doing the Lord's work today. Y'all don't know this, but the soundboard uh, got nuked this morning. A demon came into it and reset everything. And uh, praise the Lord that all of our, a lot of our best sound people, minus Daniel, were here to fix it. And... Um, yeah, that's what they're doing. So if I echo and the slides go away, even if heaven and earth shall pass away, <laughs> uh, my words will continue. I will keep preaching, okay? So, um, so he says, the sun will be darkened. This is all eschatological language. Eventually, it's going to be a wild, unmistakable moment that God, that Jesus will return. It will be unmistakable. This will be without warning. The temple collapse would have a warning. When you see them go into the temple, you know it's about to end. When the Lord returns, there is no warning. It will be sudden and unmistakable. He will come with great power and glory. 
all the truth will finally be revealed. And when he does, the elect, which is the language for his people, will be gathered to him. So you start to see a promise that even in the face of those caught up in the worst-case present-day scenario they can imagine, the Lord will return eventually and bring restoration and gather them up. That begins to look towards an eternal perspective in the crisis. And so now he says, even if our world crumbles, we are safe in God's promises. He says this, now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. So he's saying this whole discussion started with a fig tree where Jesus says he curses it, it loses its fruit, and he's saying the temple's like that. It's good. It becomes fruitless, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to end. It's obsolete now. Now he uses a fig tree for a new illustration to say when you start to see fruit on a fig tree, you know that something's about to happen. Even so, it's the situation now. This, the, 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 fruit, the fig tree is coming, and the Jerusalem situation is going to collapse. No, it's coming. When you see these things happening, you know the end is near and right at the door, and truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right, more headaches here, but I'm trying to slow down with you. When you hear, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened, you think, again, it's about time, right? The very next passage, he says, you don't, we don't know when it will happen. Like the next one next week that we're going to talk about, He's like, you won't even know. He's like, I don't even know. So don't bother guessing when it will happen because we don't know. So if the next verses are him saying it's not about time, you can't now look at this and say that this is about time. It's not about time. What it is about is a promise to the disciples sitting right there that though they will be caught up into this, and actually some of them would even be dead by the time this happens. Okay? This is going to happen 35 years later. Some of them will be dead by then. So the fear would have been, if I die before the Lord returns, I might miss out on the whole thing. And this is his way of saying, this generation will not miss out. They are not going to miss out. They are included in all the things. They are included in all the things. Many of them will witness my words being vindicated when the temple goes down. That, many believe that vindicated Jesus' words, that he was telling the truth, when it happened, and it strengthened their faith. And he's saying this generation will be included in all of it. Not necessarily around time, where they will be included when the second coming happens, but they, they will not miss out on the broad picture of promises. Again, you see this, I see it, and you want to think it's about time, but he tells us in the very next paragraph, it's not about time. You can't guess the time. But this generation will not miss out and then finally says, heaven and earth will pass away. It will feel that way when Jerusalem goes down. But my words, my promise will never pass away. And what was his promise? Wait. It was that he will gather the elect. Verse 27. His words are, you will experience all kinds of distress. You could. You don't know, but you might. And when you do, you'll be tempted to not run and think that you have a false sense of security. You'll be tempted to find a false comfort in a false influencer or leader who will tell you just the way to stay safe and comfortable. You'll be tempted to maybe walk away from Jesus and say, I got to look out for number one now because this world's too scary for me. And Jesus is saying, don't. Just hold tight because one day I'm going to make things right. And when I do, my words will be vindicated and you will be gathered with me. 
Man, how y'all doing, man? Are y'all, like, dying? We cool, Tim? Tim's cool. I'll get affirmation from Tim. He's sitting right here, man, going to look me in the eye and be like, it's cool. Even if the rest of you are like, I don't even know what's going on. So I'm going to try to bring a resolve now. So we had a recap. The world is not safe, yet you are safe in the God's promises. What do you do in such a world? And this would relate to us all because this is where faith crises really happen, okay? This is where faith crises really happen. When we get in the crossfires of the pain of this world, either on a very personal local level or on a mega level, it's overwhelming to us. And even if you hear the generic promises that God says it's going to be bad, (laughs) you're like, yeah, yeah, but why now? You're like, I don't like that he promised that. And so most faith crises come with an inability to resolve overwhelming pain that we are caught in the crossfires over that we witness, okay? So here's kind of a a three kind of track thought of how I imagine us resolving this. With thick skin and a soft heart, we have to accept this is our world. Much of our rage against the Lord is really a rage against reality that we cannot control. And if you want to abandon Jesus, the pain's still there. People are like, why would I follow Jesus in this world? Like, you, you got the pain regardless. If you, like, walk away from Jesus, you still have the same pain. The pain that you hate, that made you hate God, it didn't go away when you try to go away from Jesus. It doesn't solve your actual problem. So everybody is finding a way to accept it. And when I say with a thick skin and a soft heart, that we are prone to want to have thick skin and a thick heart, like a thick skin and a calloused heart. And we know these people. They're people that act like they don't feel pain. Look at me, I don't feel pain. They're young people, man. They go outside with a T-shirt on when it's freezing outside. (laughs) But now the same people, I see them at King's Island, it's 95 degrees, they got hoodies on. I haven't learned from the youth yet why they wear hoodies in the summertime now. I mean, they look sweaty under there. But I don't even know how I got there. But there's a temptation... (laughs) To be calloused, to be calloused and say, I don't feel pain, and so I also don't have a soft heart, and so I can't feel your pain. And so I, res- I eliminate a capacity to empathize with you and your suffering because I am just like a cold-hearted, cynical person in the face of all suffering. I've numbed up. Or we are so soft-hearted, we got all the feels, we're in it with people, but it's overwhelmed. You can't feel it all, especially today where you are so uh, bombarded by bad news. No shortage of it that if you have a soft heart, you just can't even cope with it, right? But if you can have a thick skin, like, man, I will have to weather the storm while having a soft heart that I can still empathize and feel people's pain. We are working, we are, we're in a good direction now. But of course, that feels impossible, right? But that's, to me, a, tr- a track to go towards acceptance. So the question would be how? How would we ever be able to continue in a world where one after another we have an onslaught of pain and yet keep a soft heart? It's that Jesus has the words of life. We have the heart of Peter when a lot of people hear Jesus' promises and they don't like them. They would rather have a, a better comfort, a better, a false promise of comfort and victory and goodness that will immediately come. And they all leave him in the book of John. And then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, y'all going to go too? And Peter says, where else can we go? You have the words of life. And that's sometimes, like what I, that's sometimes the extent of my faith when I'm in pain. It's like I am very angry right now. I'm in despair And yet, where else can I go from here? I really don't like the options I've been given. But if I go away from Jesus, my pain doesn't go away. And you know people like this. What it involves is uh, despair, addiction, and broken relationships as they're chasing anything they can to cope. But the ones that you know that can move through the pain, they're often with Jesus, and they're being honest with themselves along the way.
So Jesus has the words of life, he says, because all of his teaching would actually be vindicated even when you experience pain. It's like, oh, yeah, Jesus told me this. When I got to that part of my yearly devotion, I hated that it was there, and so I just moved past and read it. But if I said in his words, he would tell me, don't be surprised when I tell you in this world you will have trouble, and now the trouble is here. But he also has the words of life to cope moving forward that he can empower you to have a surprisingly soft heart in the face of that. And you're like, that sounds impossible. But I can tell you right now, I'm looking at faces in this room. I don't want to necessarily embarrass people, but I could call out, I mean, I can call out 25 people right now that I know have insane pain and have been through crisis and have been through stuff that has, has seemed wrecking to them, and yet they seem to have the kind of softened heart that I would long to emulate. So it is possible, and the evidence of it is like your faces right here. So when you're with other people in the community and you learn their story, and you're like, I cannot believe it was that bad, and yet they've been able to hold it together. It's because they've clung to the words of life from Jesus. And it, in the moment, you may want to rage against that, and you'll go through periods of sincere uh, depression and despair and hate what the world is. And yet, if you hold on to Jesus long enough, I think you will become that kind of person too. And then you'll sit in a group, and people will learn your pain, and they'll be like, wow, they're still faithful. I can too when mine comes. That's how it will happen. Jesus is the one that has the words of life that can give you a soft heart and thick skin and a world that you will have trouble. And then lastly, we endure temporary crises with eternity in view. So one of the ways Jesus has the words of life is he says, the worst case scenario, even if the worst case scenario was to happen, it's not the last case scenario. It's not the end of all things. Your long-term worst case scenario as a Christian is eternal life gathered with Jesus, safe and secure with him. And so if we have eternity in view, the temporary crises are bad. But as Paul says, they are light and momentary. Now, you don't go telling somebody your pain is light and momentary. <laughs> it's very powerful, though, when you can speak of your own pain. This is real. I'm sad about it. It makes me cry. It makes me angry. It makes me swear. I'm frustrated. And yet, I can acknowledge it is light and momentary compared to the glory that is to come with Jesus. That's a powerful claim. And that's what I mentioned about Linnea Wednesday on the, at the funeral is that she spoke with that kind of hope. She spoke frequently with that kind of hope that even though her world seemed to be crashing, she could speak with confidence that in the end, Jesus would win. That makes me think of the words from Jonathan Edwards. He's an old preacher. Lots of things wrong about him, but I love that he said, he had the prayer, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. Because that feels really real. Every day you're tempted to be just enthralled by the bubble that's right around you. It feels so temporary, but yet it feels so real because you can see it and feel it and touch it. And yet he's praying to God, Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs so that when I'm looking at these temporary painful crises, I somehow see them and through them I get to see all of eternity to come. And what that does is not make the pain go away. It doesn't dismiss it. It doesn't make it less true. It's very true. And also you're confident that in the end Jesus will win. And it's with that sense of confidence that you can reflect a softened, warm, forgiving heart, that you can be a non-anxious presence in the face of any crisis you're experiencing personally or globally, that you can be honest with tears about your pain, but not hopeless as you share it, 
and you're able to empathize with the pain of another, not stunned or scandalized by the truth that they tell you. So you accept that this world is what it is, but through the power and presence of Jesus, he's going to make things right in the end. And honestly, we, where else can we go but that truth? Our other options are worse. Jesus got us, though, and this is temperate, and in the end, he will win. Let's pray.